Hello, and welcome to the Pioneers Wanted podcast. This is the show that's all about pioneers. We think that the business world is stuck in a dangerous comfort zone, short-term thinking, living on past glories, and running from disruption. That's bad for them, bad for their teams, and bad for society as a whole. We can do better, and pioneer leadership is the antidote. Pioneers ask the big questions. They challenge the status quo, and they chase a better and more purposeful future. They're also great to hang around with and important to learn from, and that's what we do here on the Pioneers Wanted podcast. My name is Philip Clark, and in this episode, I was joined by Juliet Davenport, OBE, the climate change activist, founder, and CEO of renewable energy business, Good Energy. We explored the responsibility to be a voice of the future, how to change the shape of an entire market, and the lessons we should all learn from Guardians of the Galaxy. Enjoy the episode. My guest today has done something remarkable and remarkably important for all of us. It's now 30 years since NASA scientist James Hansen gave his now famous warning on the impending climate crisis to the US Senate. At the time, less than 1% of the energy consumed in the UK came from renewable sources. Despite our country being rich in waves, wind and water, energy was a dirty business. We burnt things to generate energy and few people batted an eyelid. But my guest today noticed. She was a young physicist studying at Oxford who quickly grasped the consequence of climate change and decided to do something about it. Starting out in policy and research, she quickly realized that she needed a seat at the table. The business she started, Good Energy, was an entirely new kind of UK energy company, a small, green, sustainable supplier looking to catalyze change in an industry full of giants. Today, almost 50% of our electricity comes from renewables. She's learned some interesting lessons along the way about the culture of big business leaders, the value of diversity, and the importance of role models. And as you might expect, all of this endeavor was recognized in 2013 with an OBE. There is, though, she says, still much to do. Welcome to the show, Juliet Davenport. Thank you, Philip. Thank you for inviting me. So we first met seven or eight years ago, and I remember that your your team at the time described you to me as a force of nature. <laughs> and uh, and the reason I wanted to invite you onto the show today is that I think you're a brilliant example of a pioneer in action, much more than just an entrepreneur. You have a, a mission not to play the game by the rules others have set, but to utterly reinvent the game that we're all playing. And it must be said that many more people are playing by the rules of your game today than they were 20 years ago. So let's start at the beginning. I'm really interested to understand more about the, the biggest influences and the passions that formed your worldview and, and shaped your outlook on the world. I guess I didn't start life as an advocate for trying to reduce carbon. I mean, that, that as you explained, that really came to me when I, when I was a young physicist. God, that feels so long ago. And before that, my father was actually involved in the motorsport sector. So it was a very high carbon sector. And I spent most of my childhood either on the side of a race circuit or the side of a rally course. But what was interesting about that was that both of those sports were highly innovative, lots of engineering based, very male as well, very few female faces. And it gave me, I guess, no fear because they seemed to come across a lot of challenges. So, so when, you, when you take a car and it rolled four times and then they stuck it back together and made it work again, it kind of gave you the impression that you could do anything, I guess. And it, it gave me huge confidence, one, in, in being in those circles that to a certain extent could be quite intimidating, but also that people just got on and fixed things and then, then you were out there doing what you were doing. So I yeah, I think I think that early part of my life gave me a huge confidence, which would then serve me well later on. It's something we hear a lot, actually, when we're speaking to pioneers, the sense of intrinsic problem solving and that creativity. Yes. But I think, interesting, you reflect that actually it, it was a male-dominated environment, but you held your own because that was the normal and, and you were part of that environment. And, and that probably teed you up for an industry that was, was quite retro. Yes. Yes. I mean, I didn't really mean to go into an industry that didn't have any women in it, but um, it didn't seem, I guess, 
where I was as a kid and where I grew up, I didn't feel any difference. So therefore, when I entered, became a physicist, for example, I think we were one in 10, maybe one in 12, and then went into a sector that similarly very, very little diversity. It didn't feel odd to me and it didn't feel intimidating. I mean, I I recognize as time has gone on that actually having more diversity, one is more enjoyable to work in a workplace when you've got a whole diverse range of people. But also I think it delivers much better results. You think about risk in a completely different way. And and that that single state of mind that you get with the lack of diversity really undermines things. But but yeah, I mean, I had no fear of it when I saw it at the beginning. And you went on then to read uh, physics, I think, at Oxford. Yeah. And and, and uh, you talk about the role that Michael Fish yes. played in uh, your aha <laughs> moment. Why don't you tell us more about that? So that was that was a moment. I mean, I think, I, I must admit, when I went to Oxford, I found physics really tough. So I'd come out of a world where I had a brilliant A-level physics teacher who taught us very intuitively. So I... So, I understood physics for quite a while. And to be honest, I'd chosen the subject because I'm not very good at learning things off by heart. So physics had the smallest folders. So you had to understand more and learn less, which suited me down to ground. And when I got to Oxford, I found some of the first stuff that we did, or sort of thermodynamics, really tough and I didn't understand it. And of course, I didn't couldn't fall back on the ability to learn things by rote because I'd never had that. Um, so I found those first couple of years really, really tough. And it wasn't till almost the Michael Fish moment when I, I just remember actually waking up in Oxford the next day and, and um, all the streets were sort of windswept and lots of dustbins everywhere. And then you came on the news and kind of loads of woods had been felled at that point. And there was this outcry that the, the that Michael Fisher got it wrong. And I then, I was beginning to get interested in this whole area at that point. There was that, there was lots of coverage in the news. And I, I chose atmospheric physics as part of my final part of my degree. And that, those two moments kind of came together because it made suddenly the science that I was doing made huge sense and I understood it and it had a relevance. And that, that was kind of really the launch pad for where I went after that. So the, the great storm was 1987, I think, and, and you were yeah. uh, doing atmospheric physics a year or two after that, I think, late 80s. Yes. Yeah. 88, 89. So, you know, similar kind of time to uh, Jim Hansen talking to sort of US Senate and, and climate change. Yeah, we're, we're on the same wavelength. Uh, that's, that's what he told me to. <laughs> Um, so you suddenly got this you had this personal aha moment you had this kind of professional and scientific aha moment yeah you recognize there is a there's a big problem here there's there's an emergent problem which 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 frankly just wasn't you know it just wasn't on anybody's radar beyond the scientific community I think probably at that stage Mm. you had a bit of a delayed route into it though you've talked about sort of almost struggling a bit to find your way into it yes when I graduated, I think I, I can't really remember because it's so long ago now. But 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 there was a downturn, there was a recession. It was quite difficult to get jobs. So a lot of people were sort of turning towards the more traditional accountancy route, legal route. And I was slightly lost because I went, well, <laughs> what is my route? How do I get into employment? Because when you graduate, I mean, you, ha- you I'm not sure you have a lot of skills that help you get a job. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, you might have some, and there were some people who were super focused on making sure that their career was on them. But I wasn't one of those people, and I also didn't know what career I wanted to go into because there wasn't a route, there wasn't wasn't anything to do. And I, I think I still I still constantly held true to the idea that I wanted to do something on climate change. But in the meantime, I just took jobs as they came along, and and I think what was interesting about that time is it was a very wiggly path. I mean, I have to say it sort of went off and off into the distance in the opposite direction for quite a while and then came back. But I think everything you do when you get a job, you actually learn something. So I, I actually went into sports PR briefly and I learned how to write a press release and I learned how to talk about product and placement and all those kind of things. So Although it's not somewhere I would go back to, it, it, it taught me a huge amount. And I think that that early part of when you graduate, you learn from everything you do. I was going to talk about the well-trodden path of Oxford physicists through sports PR, Caribbean hotel jobs, and, <laughs> and so on. But but they 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 do equip you in different ways. I think if you if you're able yeah. if you have a learning mindset, if you can take that on, you can enjoy your twenties. But but <laughs> you you never lost this kernel, this intent. And so you found yourself um, 
doing an internship uh, in the EU, I think, which sounds like it was really yeah. foundational. Yeah. It kind of gave you an almost an understanding of the architecture of the energy industry and the way the world worked. Is that fair? Yes. Yeah, completely. I, I, I mean, I got to work on a lot of different areas and in turn, you kind of just got things thrown at you, normally in another language with a dictionary. And you had to go off and, and write briefing papers. And I think I worked on security supply. So I got to understand where all the power stations were in Europe and what people's concept of making sure the lights stayed on were. I got to understand the interconnectability between the whole of Europe. So where all the pipelines were, where all the electricity cables were. I got to understand what the politics were between the countries, who had what and who wanted what. And I actually then worked on something called the European Energy Charter, which was an international treaty. So I got a sort of brief insight into international negotiations with the Americans at the table being particularly difficult as usual. The Australians, the Japanese were interesting. So that kind of oversight of what does geopolitics look like on a global scale related to energy um, and I and that that was fascinating and 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 I think gives me a real grounding in why don't things happen in the energy sector um, and what are the barriers and a lot of the barriers are the existing incumbents because they're protecting either their balance sheet or their their idea of what their country is their national pride in some cases um, and and so it was fascinating to kind of see this interplay with. I guess I came from a point of view as you should deploy technology that's going to save climate change. And of course, that just didn't happen. So it was it was a, an amazing grounding. And it was relatively short. I think I spent six months there and then six months in the European Parliament, again, working on carbon taxes and again, understanding what was the barriers to that. And so that, that I came out of that kind of with an understanding of Okay, so if you do want to make change, who should you be in this world and how do you get there? Really interesting because it sounds like there was something of a transition from a theoretical understanding of the, the scientific reality of climate change, but going into that mm -hmm. both big P and small P political environment and applying that economic and yeah. business overlay, which is the reality, that's the machine that runs our, our economies. A really interesting and formative time. So you you left the EU, left the European Parliament, went into consulting, I think, and you were doing policy work. You're doing analysis yeah. work, often for UK government departments, I suspect. Yeah, and I'm sure some of it was inspiring. But <laughs> I, it, it sounds like the thing it inspired you most to do was to stop doing that and to go and start <laughs> doing something else. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, I think there's a lot of the work that, that consultancy and analysis work that is really important. And you see a lot of policy change based around it. So fundamentally, no government is going to set a target unless you have some analysis underneath it that tells you what the potential is. But I, I guess there was one particular project I worked on, which was a local study, actually. It was a study of the southwest of England and the potential for renewable energy. And actually, today we see the southwest is, is, is huge deployment of renewable energy across it. But at the time, it was very limited. And it was a regional study. I think I worked on it. It was the first project I worked on my own, actually. Maybe that's why it particularly impacted me. And I wrote the study. We looked at the potential. We did all this modeling. We tried to represent it geographically so you could see it on a map and everything done a load of work the only feedback I got was that they didn't like the table on page seven okay and at this point I went oh my god is this my life is this my life is reformatting tables for government departments I really really don't think I can cope with that and is that actually going to change anything no it doesn't feel like it will and is anybody ever going to read this report? Is it just going to be put on a pile on a shelf and collect dust? And that's made me really depressed, I think. And that was when I began. I mean, to be fair, there were a lot of reports we wrote that did have significant impact. We wrote, um, we did we did a study of 30 European countries and the potential for renewables, which set, then went into setting the European target. So there was work we did there that was amazing. But I kind of I kind of felt that there was there were some pieces of work that would do that, but there was a lot that just just sat around and didn't get get any traction whatsoever. And that was a kind of starting point for going, I want to do something more than just telling people what the potential is. I want to be part of that potential. We talk a lot in my consulting firm about how much good regulators can do. Big companies often really struggle with regulators. Mm -hmm. And yet regulators tend to come in quite late once, you know, what you should be doing is fairly 
evident mm -hmm. and they come in and they set the framework to, to ensure that you do do it. Mm -hmm. But I think what's interesting is you had that regulatory perspective, but you also understood that change on the ground required businesses to do something. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think you're about 30 at this point. You, you kind of moved yeah. from a consulting role into being an energy player. Mm -hmm. How clear was your game plan or your your North Star? How did that, I understand it would be frustrating to know the world's got a big problem and yeah. you're being picked up on the wrong font. But um, <laughs> what what was it that made you think, okay, you know what, I'm, I'm going to be part of this. I'm going to be a player on the other side of the fence. So I think it was very consumer driven, so customer driven. So I felt that governments did do things, but they tended to move quite slowly and were influenced by probably the majority by existing players, particularly the UK government, I felt, possibly Europe as well, but UK government more so. And I felt that the people who were not represented, and and I'm not quite sure how I picked this up, but the concept that consumers actually were more risk-taking and more imaginative and prepared to take steps forwards more than government and more than industry. And so therefore, creating something that could allow them to be part of finding a solution felt really powerful to me. And and um, I'd, I'd actually gone and presented one of the studies, one of the many studies that I wrote at a conference in Greece. And I was obviously very rather relieved because I presented to this conference. I think it was the biggest one I'd ever done at that point. And I was chatting afterwards and I met somebody who we basically turned around and started having the same conversation about consumers and actually a consumer-led change would be so powerful. And he turned out to be an investor, a German investor, and we agreed to set up the UK company with, a, with some investment from Germany to really empower consumers to be part of the conversation and not be left on the outside. Really interesting. And Germany, of course, had a much stronger green and social movement earlier, I think, than the UK. Yeah. And so you had the advantage of his insight and perspective and understanding of that market. Yeah. And you were seeing it emerge in the UK. Okay, really interesting timing. So you already knew there was generation capacity because of the work you'd done as a consultant. Yeah. You had this uh, intuition, I think, around consumers. They were being ignored. Yeah. And you talk about this sense that you had a responsibility to have a seat at the table. Yes. Tell, tell me more about that. So, so what's really interesting, I, I reflected on it. I, um, I read a book on climate change on my honeymoon, as most people do. Um, anyway, it was fascinating. It was by an American scientist who basically, and, and it, was, it was really interesting. It was, a, it was looking at geology of climate change over history and things like that. And the end of the book got to the point where it said, in conclusion, we need to do something about it. We need to do something about climate change fast. And it should be really easy. Look, I think it was Los Angeles he gave the example of created sanitation within 10 years when they'd had sort of pollution and uh, sewage running through their streets for years. And, and the point was, I thought about that. And the point was that there was nobody stopping them. There was nobody out there going, we want more sewage in the streets because that makes us money, because there wasn't. And actually putting it underground and getting construction contracts to do that, there were a lot of positives. It, it would improve human health. It would give jobs to people to maintain that. So it was a win-win situation. The issue in the energy sector has always been is that the only people at the table have been the people who are already at the table. And so you have to get Government has to be incredibly strong in its leadership capabilities and its knowledge. I mean, I think that's always been the challenge is that it's all very well saying a government can lead, but if they don't know what the issues are or they don't know what the potential is, where do they lead to? And so my view was that if you actually had somebody who had an alternative view at the table, who could put an alternative view, that would help government. That would help government make different decisions. I also think it would help incumbent companies as well. So, so my experience of working in that kind of role, I was on the board of one of the trade associations for a while with, with a lot of the big six CEOs. And one of the CEOs came up to me afterwards and said, we love you going out there and, try and making a difference and saying challenging that we can do things because it means that I can go back to my senior management team and tell them that if good energy have done it, then we can do it. And, and I do think there is that piece is that the, it's a human state. I mean, we don't particularly like change. And we're going to, if we don't know how to do something exactly, it's a very engineering approach. I mean, a lot of people, if they can't see it and build it straight away, they will say no. 
Whereas I always think physicists are slightly different because uh, there's a lot of stuff we don't understand, but there's there's a lot of stuff we take for assumption and therefore make lots of can create massive theories about that seem to work. That's obviously an abbreviation of physicists. That that concept of leap of faith to a certain extent that creatively we can create something different and going and proving you can do it means that you move a whole industry and a whole government forwards in this conversation. We talk um, now and again about Elon Musk, like him or loathe him, and the fact that by demonstrating there is a different way, it forced everybody to have a different conversation. And what you did by stepping up commercially into the market, you know, the incumbents were telling the past and you were the voice of the future. Yeah. And I imagine they looked and felt very old-fashioned very quickly. They were very condescending, actually. There were a lot of them. that I mean, I think some of the conversations that I've had with people, I was just like, oh, seriously? Did you really seriously just say that to me? And 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 conceited and arrogant. Um, not all of them. Some of them were wonderful, but but there were a few who were just unbelievable. There was one CEO who said, "The sun doesn't really shine very often in the UK. That's why we don't do solar." And then obviously I cheered. When was it? It was um, the 24th of May this year when solar was the biggest single source generator of our electricity in the UK. So it is quite sunny in the UK. And from what I recall, he didn't just say that to you. He said that to Vince Cable, who was the Secretary of State at the time. So that was a yeah, spectacularly yeah. unhelpful thing. But you, using market mechanisms, using customer traction, evidenced the future and built the future. That's what we try to do. I mean, that, that that's what we've always tried to do. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But But generally, we seem to have moved forward at every stage. Okay, so this could be a lovely liberal story about the lady who went to Oxford, got a grip on climate change, went to the EU. But but the difference is you ran a business to do it. This isn't a policy-only theoretical story. You moved the market no. by by business choices. So you had some early funding from your, uh, uh, I think, the German uh, backer. Yeah. But you know, as you went through, you needed to scale the business. You needed to fund the business. And you were, I suspect, unproven and uh, people uncertain about you. So Give me a sense of how the the investment community treated you and how you dealt with it. Yeah, I mean, I think the investment community quite liked new innovative ideas, but that tend to be very tech orientated, very IP orientated. And obviously what we were bringing was a concept, a consumer led concept that wasn't necessarily cheaper, which obviously if you meet any investors, they think that's quite odd. And so we we did. We went to see a bunch of VCs. We went to see a bunch of family officers, and and they didn't get it, and they weren't interested. They didn't believe in it. And so uh, it was at that point that I went, okay. Well, I it was a fairly small company, so I used to sit it almost in the call center, and I would hear a lot of the calls coming in, particularly those ones that were sort of questions slightly outside the box, weren't just about electricity meters. <laughs> they were about other things. And so I'd help the team answer them. And, and, and consistently, we had questions around, can we invest? And so my view is, you can always do a survey and find out what people think. But if people come to you with the concept, it tends to mean that it's very strong. So I sat down with my chairman and I said, well, why don't we do an EIS fundraise? Go to our customer base and see where they want to invest. So we we did a load of work. I remember, I remember going through the document because, again, Fine detail and spelling check is not my top capability, I would say. And um, I, I just remember having a massive headache, having read this document back to front, kind of every which way you could. But we put together a prospectus. It was fairly simple. Didn't really promise a lot at all, but it promised that we were going to try and keep making sure that we made change in the industry. And we went out to our customer base and we raised... 600,000 in a couple of weeks, which is more than we'd ever raised before. So it, it was a fascinating process and it, it was just so exciting. I have to say every day was exciting when you came in and saw how many people had invested. And these were all small investments. I mean, the average investment at that point was 500 pounds or something. But but it, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure I can claim this, but I think it was effectively one of the first crowdfundings in the UK because crowdfunding wasn't a thing at that point. We just did it because it made sense. Yeah, it was certainly before it was straightforward to go through a Cedars or a Crowdcube or, or someone else. Yeah. And, and interesting, because one of the things that happens when you step out and stand for something different is that people notice and people who believe in your mission jump on board. And I love the idea of customers not just loving your your product, not just loving what you were for, but actually wanting to be more part of it and to grow it with you, to be part of building yeah. a thing that was meaningful. 
Um, that's that's great. And I'm, I'm guessing you have customers from those days who are customers and shareholders now. Yes, we do indeed. And I mean, I think it's been a really interesting journey in that in terms of actually how important engaging with individuals is. And this this is about engaging with consumer power much more than I think anybody ever thought was possible. When I when I joined the energy industry, everybody talked about households and businesses as meters. And what was far more interesting is to think, well, what's beyond the meter? And in the household is a person or a business and they live and they exist. And actually, if you envisage the energy market like that, rather than just up to the meter, things become much more possible and interesting. I worked with an energy retailer who uh, had a segmentation which included high burners because you only existed as a as somebody based on your consumption of energy, which is um, yeah pretty shocking. Yes, it's not like that now. I'm glad to say, but so you went on this sort of journey. I think it was uh, around 2000 that you set up uh, Good Energy. You, you've kind of gone on this journey. It's very easy, I think, for people looking from the outside to look at how the markets changed, look at how society mm-hmm. has evolved look at how the success that you've had and, and sort of go, oh, well, it was obvious. It was always going to work. I suspect mm. that when you were in it, it didn't feel like it was always going to work. No. Um, give us, no. You know, give, give me a sense of, uh, you know, if there was ever a moment when you suddenly thought, crikey, is this going to work? Or, you know, an idea of the biggest hurdle you had to overcome along that journey. That's really interesting because there, there were quite a few. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, just as a little anecdote, the first one was when we applied for electricity license and um, I went to our regulator and they said, uh, so you fill out this form and tell us what your business plan is and then you need three years audited accounts. And I went, we're a startup. And he said, no, but you need three years audited accounts. Like, okay, this really wasn't set up for new businesses, was it? So that was an interesting Catch-22 conversation that we had. I think then we struggled buying power, to be honest. So we went out, I knew where the renewable generators were, and we went and met with quite a few of them. But if you try to buy significant amounts of power to grow, we were basically being told we have to give two years credit in advance because credit committees of those organizations wouldn't sell to us. And so actually, again, we just went, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> we better find a way around this. And we did. So we then we then really pioneered in the small generation sector where we worked with communities, we worked with individuals who had small generators who, who were passionate about this. Um, and that worked really well for us because we bought their power and made sure they could still sell us their power because lots of changes in the regulation made it more difficult. And I didn't have to pay them in advance, which was also a bonus. So it was, yeah, there was some just really interesting things that you would never expect that as you got into the detail and tried to actually enact being being an energy supplier, how difficult it was. And I think for, for me all the time is breaking down those boundaries, the fundraiser I talked to you about, not being able to raise money, not being able to buy power, all, all those small things just, I guess over the years, it's just meant that when I look at things and I go, well, we can't do it. Well, let's find a way to do it. I think my team will slightly quail because not all of them, some of them just go, oh, no, not another change or a challenge. But but it is, if you if you want to change something, you have to keep going. You, and and once, once you've challenged a few things and managed to break through, you kind of get used to it and, and you, you carry on. So coming back to you as an individual then, what what kind of toll or what consequence did these experiences take on you? How did your your character or your beliefs evolve as you built your your role as a sort of an entrepreneur, as a, a pioneer in the market? I think I think what's really interesting um is when I when I first came into this marketplace, I'd, I spent a lot of time using my intellect, to be honest, to fix problems. So I and I liked doing that. It was uh, it was it was fun and it's like, oh my God, there's no problem. Let's go and fix it. But what I worked out after a while, and I have to admit, it did take me quite a long time to figure this out, was that actually that wasn't very empowering to my team. It wasn't necessarily the best way to run a company is to be the person who fixed everything all the time. And actually, possibly other people might enjoy fixing some of the things. I found managing people and leadership a bit left-handed for me, and I'm right-handed. So I found it harder. I could do it. And I don't think I really accepted how important it was for quite a long time. Because for me, most of the early years were an intellectual challenge. They were were a challenge that we kind of rose to. 
And actually, it took quite a while for me to recognize how important having a fantastic team and empowering them to get on and deliver was. And I think I'm getting there now, I hope, touch wood. But that really uh, was was quite a wake-up call for me. And it just it made my life so much better. It was quite, it was quite a struggle to go through it because once you make that decision, you then make lots of mistakes. So you make, you hire the wrong people. You think you're hiring one thing and actually you're hiring somebody else and you expect things of people that just is not possible. So that took, I have to say that probably took a good five years to figure that bit out. And people who could do that more naturally or have that as their primary capability, I would say would have cruised through that bit. But I found that much harder. But today, I think I think we're getting there. Is the answer? I'm, it's still a work in progress. I think you're probably in good company. There's a book that, tellingly, one of my team gave to me. I should probably be reflecting on that. There's a book. I think it's called Rocket Fuel, <laughs> and uh, it it's about how visionaries need operational people often to execute the vision because yeah. there are different attributes, and you need both of those to both build the future, but also to build the business. And uh, okay, interesting. So so have your goals in the 20 years or so you've been doing this, the the market is different and you have catalyzed a a, a market change in the market, but have your goals changed? Do you you measure success now the same way as you measured it when you started out? It's a really good question. I mean, I think in terms of our overall vision, I don't think that's changed as sort of we want to transform the UK market to deal with climate change. I think what is interesting is that we are now seeing the opportunity to go wider than we did before. So we very much focused on electricity historically. I think now is the time to kind of go, okay, transport and heat are the next challenges. We've now encompassing those and what we do. But in terms of what we do on a day-to-day basis and whether the goals have changed, the answer is, I think, I think measuring what we do is about how much how successful the company is at making sure it creates cash so it can reinvest in innovation and change. And it can also make sure it's providing insight and input into government policy to make sure that you have a balance in terms of the way you deliver low carbon. And I think we spent some time focusing on the operational side of the business. So I think we withdrew from some of those, but we're now pushing back into it. So I think you go through waves actually as a business because there are different points where you need to transform different parts of you. I mean, when you first start up, I wrote all the original pricing for all our, our technologies on a spreadsheet. And I, I enjoyed doing that hugely, as you can imagine. Spreadsheets are my go-to place. But over the last sort of 20 years, obviously, we've had to upgrade that spreadsheet uh, many times. Uh, somebody else now owns something similar, and then we need to systemize it. So, so as you grow, you have different parts of a challenge, and you have different parts of the business of making sure you've always got enough cash, making sure your credit lines are in place. They're slightly process-driven, and occasionally you have to uplift and change those. And I guess that, so the short-term goals can change, but the longer-term strategy hasn't really. I would say that probably strategically, we're now saying we're as interested in business customers as we are in households. And we're now in the heat and transport markets as well as the electricity market. So I think I think from that point of view, we've definitely upped our sort of ambition in terms of what we do on climate change. I think I've heard you talk about you know climate change is still the enemy. And it's great that there is a, a governmental intent towards net zero and so on. But we all need to group together to protect the planet. This is not something that's going to be solved by you or I think you've invested in ZapMap, you know, great business. Yeah. None of these individual things is going to solve the global problem. You are a, a small and ambitious part of a much bigger yes. network that needs to come together if it hasn't come together already. Yes. I think I think I might have described to you earlier my um my my vision of I don't, I don't know whether you've seen the film Guardians of the Galaxy which is a Marvel film and I might like watching Marvel films from time to time as a form of escapism. And in that, there is a particular scene where you have, there's a very large ship about to destroy a planet and you have a bunch of ships coming towards it to say little tiny ones and they all come and form together and they form together in terms of this net around this planet. And that's how I see it. I don't think there is any one solution to climate change. Climate change is an extremely complex problem. But if we recognize 
that everybody has a role, whether you're a business or an individual, and we all step up together, we make a huge difference. And that can be across. Nobody has the right to say, I am the only person doing this. Nobody has the right to say, I am going to solve it. I think we all have to solve it together. And that that's what I find exciting is that good energy plays its role. We see ourselves as a catalyst. We also deliver as, as well. And we're looking around now and we see companies who look much more like us than they did 20 years ago. And that is both slightly sort of terrifying in some ways because I'm going, oh, okay, fine. I need to get a move on, but also very exciting. So it's, it's, it's an interesting position. Do you find that because of what you've done and because of what you've achieved in kind of this first act, that you get a different tone of engagement when you are speaking with uh, people in other parts of the market, for example, in mobility, if you're speaking with manufacturers or if you're speaking with people in charging networks or mm-hmm. you know, if you're, as you look at the value pools around what you have done traditionally as your core, are you seen, are you perceived as a pioneer? Do people want to do business with you? Do you get a different attitude from energy majors than you used to? Does it feel different now? I think the answer is it does feel different. I think it's, it does, it is interesting that you can still end up having the same conversations depending on the individual and the leadership style, actually. And there are people who still believe in competition is the only only thing in town, whereas there are some who get collaboration and you can collaborate and you can compete. And I think the more we see of that, the, the quicker we will get there in terms of finding solutions on climate change. So, yeah, I hope so. But I still find I still find pockets of feeling people feeling threatened or people feeling that they are the only answer to the problem and wanting to be heroes and I think we should all be heroes but just all together. You touched earlier on the the challenge of letting go of the reins in some areas and and having other people solve problems in your behalf inside the business yeah and uh, I wondered if there have been examples where this difficult trade-off to make between commercially obvious things to do and being true to your purpose you have this triple bottom line objective, yeah. but some people will be more naturally wanting to pull one lever than another. What experience do you have of those kind of trade-offs? Yeah, I mean, I think I think most times when you get a new senior executive in a business, they want to come in and demonstrate a change or probably demonstrate where they think you've got it wrong already. And I, I've definitely come across a couple of times where um, we might have taken on a new finance director and suddenly they turn around and said, we want to get rid of all your green credentials because they're a bit expensive. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's fundamental to what we do. That's who we are. So those were quite interesting conversations where basically they want us to become a greenwasher. And it's like that, but that's the purpose of the business is to make change. And it is, and it's harder. So we just need to get on with it, really. And I think, I think they've definitely had those conversations over time. I've also had conversations where people have told me how easy it is to get out there and do this and then discovered it isn't. So yes, I mean, there's there's been various difficult conversations where we've had to hold true to who we are and what we do. And my personal view is that is the most important piece is you basically put some red lines, whether that's a policy related to consumers or employees or shareholders, it doesn't really matter. You do a red line, you say, we don't step over that. And I, and I think it's become easier as time's gone on. Those conversations have become easier. And I think most people are genuinely trying to do the right thing. They just think it's easier to do not to do something cheaper rather than to actually deliver on what your ambition is. So you've got a business of a few hundred people now yeah. and, and a few hundred thousand customers, as I understand it. Very successful business. But do you ever get the opportunity to kind of pause and reflect? I'm interested in and where you take most satisfaction from what you've built over the last 20 years. That, I'm not su- suggesting it's over. I think the first act <laughs> is perhaps complete and now you're moving into a second act. But where have you taken most satisfaction? I think I think most satisfaction has come from the concept that, well, first of all, there's the proof of concept. So uh, you stated when we first started up, renewables was kind of 2% or less of the electricity market. I think the most recent data shows it closer to 47%. I take satisfaction in that. That obviously wasn't me on my own. <laughs> I can't claim that. But we've got nearly a million households who are generating power. We had quite a big input in terms of how that worked and how that happened. 
we've always had a vision that decentralization and individual and business empowerment is an important part of this marketplace. I think we've always been the voice for that. So I feel excited about that. So I think, I think I've definitely that, that kind of whole shift and just that pure, I, d- I always remember the comments that we used to have when we first set up and we said we were hundred percent and I had so many people tell me that that wasn't possible to make the UK hundred percent renewable. I mean, I think every step we take today is showing that we can make it hundred percent renewable. And why, why wouldn't we? I mean, we have 40% of Europe's wind resource. We are quite sunny. <laughs> we have a massive tidal resource and range so the kind of, I guess the main part is the naysayers. And then the exciting part is then going, okay, so electrification of transport, how's that going to work? How do we make that happen? And that's why for me, the important investment in Zap is so, is so much part of that. And then what do we do on heat? So we just made some announcement about how we want to try and do initial tariffs around heat pumps. Again, all of these things are possible. And I guess our role is to show that they are and then grow the markets and make them happen. It's really interesting. I, I had the pleasure of launching a number of ventures in the clean tech space under the Blair government. And it did feel like sort of post Blair, there was this lost decade in which there were so many things we should be doing that we could obviously be doing, but without a regulatory environment and real political, big P political leadership, a lot of those things would be difficult. But now net zero is absolutely their front and center. There's, there's lots of conversation about a green recovery. Yeah. You must be part of those conversations, I suspect. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we've outlined what we see, particularly from a climate point of view, from an energy sector point of view, in terms of that green recovery. And I think, I think it has both short-term and long-term implications. I mean, longer term, we should be re- investing in research and innovation now that takes us to a zero carbon world. And that isn't about um, more cars or more planes. That has to be about innovative technologies. That has to be about evolution of existing technologies in systems so we can deliver 100% renewable. And then I think you've got to look at the infrastructure we have. We've built an infrastructure around a high carbon economy. We have to think about how we can tweak that and how we deliver a low carbon infrastructure. And then marketplaces and consumers, two really important parts of the delivery of low carbon. So it, yeah, we are, we're part of that conversation. And it's, it's a really interesting one because governments tend to, when they're particularly coming out of the situation we've got with COVID, is governments want to make big announcements. They want to make big investments. They want it to sound sexy. But quite often, it's about tweaks. It's about small changes slightly dull regulatory behind closed doors changes that will make a significant difference. And I think that's where we're pushing is to make sure you can make the big announcement from a political point of view, but we also need to practically make it work on the ground so that it makes sense. And 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 I've, I do believe that consumers can be the heart of this green recovery. I think people are incredibly positive about it. I'm sure you've seen the data where it says, I think some cases less than 6% of people want to go back to a pre-COVID world which means that people want cleaner air, they want better communities, they want more wildlife in their communities. All those things that everybody, when we stopped, people started to appreciate. Let's try and bed those in, in terms of what we do. And what's fascinating for me about renewables is it can deliver on a lot of those things. Somebody said to me recently that they're an advisor to big utilities and they said a lot of the long-term plans are just being ripped up because assumptions about public transport versus private transport, assumptions about how and where we'll work, assumptions about where we need the water, assumptions about where we need the energy. They're changing rapidly. And it's interesting how this kind of structural break gives the freedom to ask the really big questions again. Completely. So you were recognized in 2013 with your OBE, for which congratulations, a little bit late, I suppose. <laughs> but but here's, here's your opportunity to bespoke recognition on others. I'm really interested in, in whether there are any particular pioneer initiatives or, or individuals who you've really noticed, things that excite you, uh, whether in and around your space or totally separate, anything that you'd steer people to keep an eye on or to be excited about in the way that you are. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. So I think I think if I look at the scientific community, I think we're seeing sort of, it was an organisation I was part of a while ago and now, now is, seems to be taking a leading role is the Natural Environmental Research Council is really taking a step forward to own zero carbon from a research point of view. I think that's fantastic. I don't, I don't think it had that role before. 
And, and again, it's one of those things that the general public isn't necessarily going to see, but unless we have our research institutes and our research funding really saying, this is part, this is what we do. This is what we're going to do as part of the zero carbon. We're we're not going to see the long-term benefits that we need to see as a country. So I think that's been a fantastic, I'm seeing that coming through now. I think then, then obviously we're looking at infrastructure. So the fact that we're seeing zero carbon infrastructure rolled out through electric vehicles. I mean, we obviously made the investment in ZapMap, but there are loads of other companies that are now coming forwards that have fantastic technologies and are rethinking the travel ideas. So coming up with fantastic ideas about if you're going to recharge an electric car, how do you make that whole experience brilliant? And how do you make it renewable? So you embed the renewables on site. And we're seeing some great visionary concepts around those. So that's again, again, it's not one individual in that case. There's a lot. There's a whole wave of technology coming through on infrastructure, and then I think, I think actually, you know, it sounds rather odd, but our regulator has set out. Ofgem has set out the concept that they have to be part of a regulatory system that delivers on low carbon. And and for me, actually, I wonder whether we should have challenger regulators within our system because I think it's very difficult for regulators to step out of their boxes quite often. They have a load of responsibilities. And if you had a challenger regulator, not sure how that would work, but I quite like that concept. Then you have the ability to think differently as a regulator, because I think you mentioned at the beginning, the structure of our marketplaces so dictate how quickly we can move to a new structure. And then I think consumers, I think, I think we're beginning to see, there's always been consumer players, consumer voices, but I think we need to see it step up in the zero carbon sector. I think we've relied on people like the ASA for too long. Actually, let's see some champions, good housekeeping, which some of these kind of organizations really step into this space that hasn't necessarily always traditionally been their space. But we're beginning to see that happen. And I think that's really exciting. And then if we think then about you personally and what's next for you, what are you chasing you know, going into the next decade? There's all of the things you're doing with, with good energy, yeah. but there are other things. You, you have fingers in other pies. Tell us about those. Yeah, so so I, I do a set of non-exec roles. So I do have a non-exec role sort of or a council role on Innovate UK. So I am passionate about research, innovation and universities and making sure the UK is brilliant at that. And also we're finding fantastic solutions for the society we want of the future. I think sometimes we forget that it gets a bit lost. Actually, this is about providing science should be supporting the society we want to live, that world where we have clean air, that world where we have better community and and more wildlife. Then, and I I work for various other organizations and that's very energy focused, trying to restructure the energy market. One of the other areas I'm sort of looking at as well is that I do believe in communications as an incredibly important part of climate change and always has been. And quite often we haven't told the stories as we should do. And although climate change has been involved a lot in science, documentaries, news, one one of the things that, as I've been on my journey over the last 20 years, one of the things that you absolutely see is how important communications and communications on climate change is. And I think one of the biggest challenges for climate scientists is communications is not part of your degree. It's not part of what you do. And and it's fascinating. I think I came out of university without the capability. I think I must have written a paragraph was probably the longest thing I'd written. And I don't think I'd actually ever had to speak to get my degree. So you kind of look at um, that ability and and you go, is that that kept us back from actually communicating climate change much better and making different decisions? And I was part of a conference in Oxford, which brought together scientists and artists, actually. So you have people like Ian McEwan, and some of the leading climate scientists in the same room discussing the science and discussing how could it be expressed in um, literature and drama, etc. And actually, I think Ian McEwan wrote the book Solar after that, although if you read that book, it's quite damning of scientists, so <laughs> I'm not sure what his experience was. So I really am very passionate about that. And interestingly, BAFTA came out with an analysis which showed that although climate change is covered in documentaries and in the news, it isn't covered in drama, it isn't covered in teenage programming, and it isn't covered in comedy. And so I I have got a role as a small role in sort of a production company, which is looking specifically for fantastic storytelling that does bring environment and climate change 
to the masses through through something that's really quite enjoyable because we spend a lot I don't know about you but lockdown I probably spent quite a lot of time watching TV and it's a really important communication channel that just isn't being used for this subject and that's Skipyard Productions that you're involved in yeah that's Skipyard that's Skipyard fantastic excellent okay and um is there any final wisdom that you would share with other pioneers people who are now where you were in your 20s and early 30s Oh, God, it's so interesting. I mean, I think my key view would be is no path is a wrong path because as long as you know what you're trying to achieve and you you keep that as a headline, you can always turn around and come back again. I think don't do nothing. Always do something, whether it takes you personally on a journey or the organization you're working with on a journey. I think that's really important. And yeah, you're much more powerful than I think we sometimes believe we are. Just by standing up and saying something, you make a difference. And I'm always surprised at when people are surprised that I'll stand up and say something. I was like, well, why wouldn't I say that? Of course I'm going to say that. And there's a brilliant book I read once called The Corporation. And there was a very visual sort of description they had was that you spend your life at home with your ethics and your family and your community. And when you walk through the door of the business, you put on a different persona and you lose all your ethics, you'll lose all your sense of community and your sense of family. And it's very visual for me, that idea. And I don't think you need to do that. I think you can run a business and be who you are and keep your ethics. And I think actually in the world that we're moving into, I think that becomes more and more important. And this concept that you become somebody different as a corporate CEO to a purposeful-led CEO, think, should go. And yeah, that would be my ambition, that every single business is purpose-led, not just the ones like Good Energy. Amen to that. Look, Julia, I've loved talking to you today. As you know, I'm in awe of what you've achieved with Good Energy, and, and I'm inspired by your enthusiasm and the importance of your mission. If people want to find out more about Good Energy, mm-hmm. uh, if they want to follow you personally, where should they look? So I'm on Twitter at uh, Davenport Juliet, because I think Juliet Davenport's really taken. So I'm Davenport Juliet. And um, Good Energy is at Good Energy on Twitter, or just Google Good Energy and you'll find us. Fantastic. Look, this story has only just begun, and I look forward to everything that you have in store for the future. Thank you so much for joining me today on Pioneers Wanted. Thank you, Philip. That's been really good fun talking to you this morning. Well, I really enjoyed recording that episode and uh, spending that time hanging out with Juliet. What strikes me is how radical her manifesto must have seemed when she set out in the late 90s, but how now we can all take access to renewable energy for granted. As Juliet says, pioneers need to get themselves a seat at the table if they're going to be counted. Otherwise, the only people with a voice are those defending the past. I hope you enjoyed the episode every bit as much as I did. Pioneers Wanted is produced by Hunch, the strategic innovation practice and the home of pioneer leadership. You can check us out online at brillianthunch.com, on LinkedIn as Hunch Strategic Innovation, or follow me on Twitter at PJA Clark. (laughs) 